I say with grave tones, uh, because it is Halloween, um, and uh, we're doing the obligatory Halloween episode, aren't we, Ed? Yeah, well, obligatory in that every year we've tried to record one, and every year we haven't managed to. Yeah, we've been beset by technical gremlins uh, on one, and I can't remember what happened to the second one, but I think we'll see if we can get through this episode before judging whether there is truly a curse on our Halloween episode. Yeah, it's so far the evidence is heavily stacked against us, but uh, we've been on a roll lately, so I think I think uh, we've got momentum on our side. Mm, absolutely. Plus, I've got the Ghostbusters on speed dial, so yeah, uh, interesting Ghostbusters. Uh, you should kind of bring that up because we've had an announcement when this episode will go out three weeks ago uh, about uh, Ghostbusters, uh, a film very important to me as a youngster. I remember seeing that on home video when I was about six, maybe a little younger. Um, scared the living shit out of me mostly because of the uh, opening scene with the librarian which is kind of really terrifying um, but it was announced uh, three weeks ago uh, that Paul Feig is going to uh, rejig the franchise, reboot it completely we've had a, a, a long going uh, Ghostbusters 3 uh, hoo-ha haven't we with Bill Murray saying I don't want to do it and Dan Aykroyd saying but we're desperate to do it and we need Bill Murray um, this is surely the best solution and actually quite an exciting prospect. Yeah, I mean, that's what I've said for a while, ever since the rumour kind of surfaced that that was the way they were going to go and that Paul Feig was going to be involved. I thought that's pretty much the only version of Ghostbusters 3 that I would actually like to see because obviously now Howard Ramis is dead, so that, that removes a key component of both the, the stars and also of the creative team behind the overall vision of the first two films. Bill Murray is obviously the kind of the star and he's moved past uh, the, the series now and is probably just sick of being asked whether or not they're going to make a third one after 25 years. And mm. Dan Aykroyd, the way Dan Aykroyd seemed to be talking about it, wanting to make it into a into a shared universe kind of film because everyone wants to do that. Uh, mm. You know, there was all the, all these things that every time I kept hearing them made me think, I hope they never make a third Ghostbusters film because it's going to be a disaster. But bringing in a new team and then saying these, the original Ghostbusters either aren't going to be in it or the actors will maybe cameo in different parts, that seems to be the best way of of making it feel fresh rather than just retreading ground that uh, has not only been done in two Ghostbusters films, but also was kind of done in Evolution, which I believe was the the kind of a version of Ghostbusters 3 script that was retold to be about aliens and didn't mm. really work. So I think if we can avoid another Evolution, we'll be all right. Yeah, um, it's so blatant, that Evolution film, that uh, you can literally just kind of transpose the characters from one film to the other. Uh, and uh, Orlando Jones is very much that film's Ernie Hudson. Uh, which yeah. is, uh, you know, something you can't say about many films. Um, <laughs> I know that uh, they said that like everyone's presuming it's going to be an all-female cast because of Paul Feig's uh, last couple of films, Bridesmaids and The Heat, um, but no one's actually officially said that's going to happen. He he has said he did say in a tweet, a tweet that it will star hilarious women, but there's obviously a great difference between saying that and it's going to be an all-female cast, mm-hmm. but. Uh, that that certainly is the version I would like to see because obviously it creates a lot of opportunities for a whole generation of really funny uh, female actors and you know uh, comedians to step up and uh, 
demonstrate uh, that they can be funny and you know to kind of disprove the terrible and stupid myth that women can't be funny and obviously Paul Feig has demonstrated that he can create big accessible comedy hits uh, built around women that work for mass audiences and I'd really like to see him do it again in a kind of a context that's very different to what he's done so far mm, yeah so we'll look out for that um, I don't know when that's going to arrive um, in the next couple of years probably um, so yeah good to see we've got our fingers on the pulse um, so I mentioned that uh, Ghostbusters scared the living shit out of me when I was like five or six years old um, what scared you watching films as a child Ed? I know that we, we've, we've talked a lot in the past about your fear of being eaten by a rhino mm-hmm. um, what else because surely it can't just be that because that'd be weird well the, the rhino thing is, is very pressing but uh, no the um uh, to this day, it still mm. horrifies me every time I see ivory. I just kind of am thankful that there's one less rhino in the world. Uh, that's you very, you're pro poaching. Uh... Pro poaching. I I donate. It goes direct debit. I don't even <laughs> I, I don't even see it. It just goes straight out. No. Um, uh, vampires really scared me as a kid. Um, it, I just found the particularly the idea of vampires being able to turn people into their servants and into zombies because i kind of thought well if you got bitten by a vampire and they turned you into another vampire that'd be an inconvenience because you wouldn't be able to go out in the sunlight and uh you know that'd be really difficult certainly uh, in terms of keeping a good uh, school attendance record mm-hmm. but uh that you know that would at least you'd be a vampire you'd still have your own will and you know you'd have you'd, you'd adjust to it but the idea of being a renfield kind of character really uh, really terrified me i hated the idea of being turned into someone who had no control over their own uh, their own destiny or or being at the whim of uh, of another creature so that was always something that really preyed on my mind as a kid and what films did that to you i mean like the earliest kind of vampire films I could remember watching were things like Lost Boys, I think. And then uh, if I kind of, I stayed up very late uh, in my kind of early teen years to watch kind of hammer horror films. Um, so it kind of got a bit of high camp in there. Um, which kind of vampire films terrified you as a youth? I remember seeing the uh, the Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, one mm-hmm. of the more awkwardly named uh, films in history uh, at yeah. a very young age and that was one that had a real impact on me because you know you've got Tom Waits there playing the Renfield character and very much being someone who's reduced to little more than an animal by the influence of the Count and that that was had a, a big effect on me um, but uh, also there was a, a TV series about Dracula which was aimed at kids uh, that really, really terrified me. I think it was just called Dracula, and it was essentially about Dracula moving in next door to like a suburban family, and mm-hmm. that had the whole kind of uh, idea of him controlling people's minds. And I tracked it down a few years later just to kind of see if my memory of it was uh, correct. And judging by the opening credits, it was actually very comedic and very lighthearted. <laughs> right. So I think, it, but as a kid, just my overall fear of, of vampires made that show a lot more uh, a lot more menacing than it actually was. Yeah, I grew up watching um, a film called The Monster Squad. That was uh, my kind of uh, favourite film as a kid. Uh, kind of like The Goonies, but like a better version, but with monsters in um, and the uh, Dracula in that it features kind of all the universal monsters, kind of uh, Frankenstein's monster and uh, the Wolfman and 
uh, kind of like a creature from the, the Black Lagoon type thing, but uh, uh, Dracula's in it, but he lives next door to the the family in a kind of suburban America, and he's called Mr. Alucard, which uh, keen-eared listeners will realise is Dracula backwards. Um, and that was, I always found that fairly sinister. I never found the kind of gothic um, kind of, uh, you know, Bela Lugosi style uh, uh, Dracula terrifying. I found the kind of suburban vampire uh, the, the real problem. Yeah, definitely the idea of monsters hiding in plain sight is something that would always really uh, terrify me. I think that's one of the reasons why when I first watched any version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I think was the probably the, the 50s version, I remember seeing that as a teenager, that was always an idea. And also just you know various per- permutations on that, like uh, I think I probably saw The, the Faculty first. Mm. the uh Robert Regis film which I actually really like I think that's a, a, a one of his his better ones um and I think that that the idea of monsters being of hiding in plain sight and people knowing that they were there but no one believing them and not uh being able to convince someone that uh, these creatures are amongst us until it was too late was something that uh definitely uh, as a kid really kind of uh, terrified me because it just kind of plays into the certainly the paranoia that i think a lot of kids had that uh the the adults aren't being entirely truthful with you about the way the world works so Mm. it's kind of easy to make the leap from there from the people aren't you know telling me the truth to oh there are monsters hiding (laughs) hiding everywhere um do you think that um as youngsters and i'm going to be kind of gender specific here as uh as kind of young boys we were kind of collectively more obsessed when we were younger with kind of gore than you were with kind of being scared. Because I remember would be, you know, I'd kind of, there'd be hushed tones around uh, my school playground and someone would say, oh yeah, uh, have you seen like kind of Ian Adams' brother has got a copy of American Wealth in London on video and you'd go and watch it and you wouldn't watch it for the kind of elaborately and kind of immaculately constructed scares. Uh, you'd go to see someone's head coming off and flying over a bonnet. Yeah, absolutely. That is that's. I think that's totally true. I think the idea of seeing something not extreme in a Takashi Miike kind of sense, but something that's more extreme than what you're used to, is uh, something that's kind of universal to the uh, kind of the early explanation of horror. The idea of seeing something that your parents would dif- disapprove of, which would usually take the shape of uh, just buckets of blood and mm-hmm. just and just real kind of age inappropriate violence uh, is obviously uh, has a really great appeal in the way that you know the kind of slow scares of something like psycho probably uh wouldn't although i did i like as a kid i was really fascinated with uh with psycho just because it seemed to be this thing that everyone knew about and for me i don't know why but i got it into my head that like psycho was nothing but the shower scene like it was just that for 90 minutes because that's everyone all anyone ever talked about so i think in my head it was something that was much more violent and less uh kind of tension filled than it was in uh, in reality yeah i imagine a 90 minute shower scene with stabbing would do well in a for a certain type of market um, yeah the sort of people who would watch the fake horror film being made at the start of brian de palma's blowout yeah exactly that exactly that um, do you, what do you remember it was like being the first film not that it scared you as a as a youngster but like like actually disturbed you to the point where you were like I don't actually want to to kind of see a film again 
uh, it's going to be a strange one, but I, I remember being really, really freaked out by uh, Dougal and the Blue Cat, which is mm. the uh, ra- magic roundabout movie from the 1970s. And D- Dougal and the Blue Cat is about a blue cat called Buxton, which comes to the area of the magic roundabout and uh, is trying to make himself king of the world by completing all these tasks for a, a unseen voice called uh, Madam Blue. And uh, there's a whole, there's a sequence where he has to go through all of these different gates and complete all of these different riddles where at one point he'd met, he's menaced by a crossbow that moves of its own accord and constantly points its arrow at him and fires arrows at him. Then he's like, he has the, the series of insane creepy masks kind of fly his face and Mm. it's just this kind of like acid trip freak out (laughs) sequence in the middle of a uh, movie about uh, based on a popular children's uh, program uh, that just really really freaked me out as a kid but it it didn't make me not want to watch films it just made me want to keep watching Dougal and the Blue Cat because uh, even though it was kind of really weird and terrifying it was also very hypnotic um I had a real problem with Home Alone as a youngster mm. um, because I think I had a real fear of being burgled um, sure. when I was kind of really young. Um, and uh, I, I could never get into the comedic side of um, Home Alone, which is why if I see it now, and I saw it last Christmas, it, it is just a really awfully violent film. If you if you took like the comedy sound effects out of it, it would be one of the most sadistic films I think ever made because like but essentially a kid like shoots, stabs, burns, pushes people down the stairs and it's just it's just horrific. Um and I can't separate myself from that. I can't I can't buy into the comedy of Home Alone and all I'm thinking is this kid at any point is going to be held down and raped by these two like <laughs> kind of uh, burglars and that to me is horrifying. The second one is really bad for that as well because I rewatched the second one a couple of years ago to write a kind of a column about it, making fun of it, and there the violence in that one is just really ludicrous in comparison to the first one because there's a scene where he drops a series of bricks on Daniel Stern's head. And the first one, because he's dropping it from like the fourth story of a brownstone, you think that at best would have knocked him unconscious. Uh, at, at worst, it almost certainly would have just split his skull open and killed him. And then he just keeps doing it. And it, it does that thing where the the slapstick is so extreme, but the effects of it are so kind of played for real. Mm. Like when they manage to get into the... Uh, like Joe Pesci when he after being I believe kind of like electrocuted kind of walks into the house he's walking with a bit of a limp and Daniel Stern seems to be a bit dazed by being hit in the head with fucking bricks that uh, that you know there's a sense that they are really suffering and they are in actual pain so it does uh, detract from the slapstick to a great extent Uh, but also uh, the first one I was really really scared of the guy that helps Kevin McAllister at the end the guy who oh yeah uh, who lives across the street and uh, <laughs> it, continuing the theme uh, saves him by smacking the uh, the uh, wet finger bandits, whatever their name is, with a shovel. The wet bandits, wet, wet finger bandits, bandits is, is something, something else entirely. Yeah, it's a different film. Uh, but yeah, like he saves them by just smashing him in the head with a shovel uh, again, which is is uh, 
at least in that one, it's m- more restrained and also less crazy than the one in the second film who saves him by sicking pigeons on him. Mm. Like the worst X-Man. <laughs> yeah, that's really crazy. And like, I kind of think that like all those things are funny in like a Wile E. Coyote cartoon. Mm. But when they're when they're real, like I can get what it's supposed to be, kind of like Darth Slapstick. But it's just, it's so it's really brutal. I think if someone just recut Home Alone, it's yeah, it's basically the most violent film you've ever seen. It's a very um, much a, like a prequel to Saw. Exactly you that. Kevin McAllister grows up to, to- be Tobin Bell. Mm. Uh, but yeah, the uh, I think also they're kind of going for a, a Three Stooges kind of tone with it. But again, the problem is that the effects of the violence are that are really played up like the burns appear to be fairly real and the in they they are get bloodied up whereas the three studios could be battered about the head all the time and it never seemed to affect them so yeah yeah they get a poke in the eye or a kick in the balls and not like electrocuted <laughs> set on fire <laughs> have their fingernails pulled out or whatever it's horrifying it's horrifying um I remember like a film that scared me as a child that still scares me now because obviously Ghostbusters is frightening, but I don't, I, I don't, I'm not scared of putting it in the uh, DVD player and uh, putting it on. Um, it, Alien was one of the first ones I saw mm. um, that truly uh, terrified me to my core, especially the scene with Dallas uh, in the uh, air fence uh, trying to escape, well, trying to find the the alien, which at that point they think is the size of a small cat. Uh, but actually turns out to be quite man-sized and eats his face yeah that's that's definitely one that's great in terms of i mean the whole alien the design of the alien scared me before i'd even seen the film because mm. I, I get the feeling the first time i saw the alien was in an episode of animaniacs because right. there's <laughs> there's an episode of animaniacs where the warner brothers and the warner sister dot um go to a Hollywood function and Sigourney Weaver is sat there opposite the Xenomorph. <laughs> right, uh, wow. Um, yeah, so that was a very, very weird uh, moment in 90s nineties uh, kids' entertainment. But, you know, even then you look at it and you think, that's a weird fucking-looking creature. And then just seeing uh, the images of uh, the alien whenever it was featured in, certainly around the release of Alien Resurrection, in the late 90s you started to see it show up a lot in things like empire and and stuff like that and or or showing up on film programs and just it just absolutely terrified me and uh, what's i think what's great about that design is even when i did get to see alien for the first time uh, it still works it still is a really horrifying thing to spend you know a couple of hours with or seeing it menace people because it is one of those rare one of the first examples that i always think of as an alien that genuinely looks alien you know mm. it doesn't look like a guy just in a rubber suit even though it is uh, it looks like something that has evolved completely outside of the realm of possibility on earth yeah and it's interesting you say that because the thing that i like so much about alien and something that you can definitely go back and look at uh with with kind of fresh eyes is yes it is a guy in a suit but they go to such huge lengths to uh, kind of try and obscure that, uh, which they don't in later films. You see a lot of full body shots in Aliens. Um, you see, you know, everything in Alien Resurrection because they're CGI and you can kind of do anything you want. But when it's just the guy in the suit, they kind of there's a lot of smoke and a lot of kind of uh, glimpses and a lot of kind of, you know, it hangs upside down and 
you know, kind of comes in at strange angles and it never really kind of just walks or runs about, um, which is to its power, really, because you, you don't really get to see the full thing. Yeah, but the, the shots are always, I always think of in terms of suggesting how otherworldly it is, is when he kill, it kills Harry Dean Stanton mm-hmm. and the way it enters the, thra- the frame is he's kind of getting water on his face and the creature kind of unfurls in the background. Uh, yeah. It's kind of like curved up into a ball, so, and then it, it slowly kind of un, unwinds itself, and by the time he realizes it, it's completely towering over him. And uh, I think that's the one of the closest the film gets to a full body shot of him. Otherwise, again, yeah, you just see bits and pieces, and that's enough. Um, and I think you know also the the one thing that is a testament to how great that design is is that. At the moment, uh, there's been a lot of press for Alien Isolation, which is mm-hmm. a a video game which uh, has you evading a xenomorph for uh, basically the entire length of the game. And I've seen it uh, brilliantly and derisively referred to as a locker simulator because often mm-hmm. to hide from it, you have to hide in lockers until it goes away and you can find another hiding place. And I think that's a, a great testament to how horrifying it is that you can build a game out of people just trying to avoid it and hoping it doesn't spot you. Mm. Um, and that's yeah, a testament to how good that is, and also how bad it is in Alien Resurrection, where we have the uh, the turd with the face. Yeah, that is a a real uh, yeah, just a ter- terrible blot on on that franchise. Uh, but all the uh, kind of the beginning of a series of terrible blots on it. Mm. Um, is there anything else that kind of used to scare you uh, as a kid um, I think we talked just a bit before I went on air about how uh, Disney films kind of lured us into a uh, false sense of security uh, as kids uh, for me I was always uh, scared of approaching a baby in a pram uh, because of having watched Basil the Great Mouse Detective uh, many times uh, what's supposed to be a baby in a pram is often revealed to be a man sized bat uh, <laughs> which uh, you know Nine times out of ten won't be true in real life, um, but yeah, that used to scare me. But uh, anything for you? Yeah, uh, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, one element of that film that really, really terrified me was the uh, the threat made in it that they were going to send Bell's father away to the asylum um, mm. because he comes back from Beast Castle and starts talking about a giant monster that's taking his daughter. Uh, hostage and everyone thinks he's an oddball anyway so they just think oh you know it's time to send him off to the loony bin and uh, that really affected me as a kid uh, because it, it made me think oh god you can be completely right and if no one believes you then they can just kind of lock you away for life and that is a, a kind of an existential dread that kind of uh, continues to this day the idea of uh, people thinking you're mad but you're not is something that uh, I find Particularly, you know, when I was at school at uh, A-level, I studied psychology and there was a whole thing in there about the history of psychology of people being wrongly diagnosed or experiments where uh, psychologists would check themselves into into psychiatric hospitals to demonstrate how the kind of selection criteria was not exactly that stringent, uh, that a perfectly healthy person could lie their way in and then never be let out and stuff like that just being introduced to that concept at a very early age uh, really affected me. Yeah. And it's a weird kind of existential dread <laughs> that I think is a bit much for a six-year-old to shoulder. It makes uh, Beauty and the Beast a very unlikely companion to Shock Corridor. 
yeah re- revisiting that was was weird because on the one level it's a really fun film and i really really enjoy shot corridor but on the other level it also kind of taps into something that has terrified me for uh, as long as i can remember mm. yeah throwing a, a man-eating rhino and that's a uh <laughs> A recipe for disaster. That really is um, the only thing that's missing from that film. It, <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, what scares you now, Ed? Uh, one thing that really scares me now, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit this because it's such a cheap thing, but I'm really, really afraid of easy jump scares in films. Where... Like cats jumping out from behind boxes and things. Yeah, but it's more... A really good example of like this is a film called Martyrs, which... I don't think I've told this story on the podcast before, but uh, it's one of the only films that I've ever seen in a semi-professional capacity as a critic where I really wanted to leave. Uh, And when people hear that, they go, oh, you must have been during the second hour, which is nothing but a woman being tortured. Uh, And partly it is that, because that's really tough to take. But the first half is consists largely of one girl who the first woman in the film to be tortured who escapes and then grows up and has these hallucinations of a a horrible creature constantly showing up to attack her and so the first half of the film is her kind of going about her task of trying to of killing this middle class family who she thinks was responsible for what happened to her when she was a kid when she was a kid uh, one of whom is played by Xavier Dolan who I didn't realize was in it until a few years, until a few months ago when I was looking up some of his work um mm-hmm. And so, uh, uh, but then every so often this creature will just show up and start attacking her and it always appears really, really quickly and there's always, you know, like a a shock of of strings to let you know. And every time it just really, really unnerved me and I just kind of thought, I've got to go, I can't can't watch this. It's really, really, it's really terrifying me. But I wouldn't because there were other people in there, other critics, and I felt I can't be the guy who walks out of this film. I can't be the guy who got too scared of the horror film and and left. So Mm. I forced myself to have one of the... uh, most unforgettable but also one of the most unpleasant uh cinema experiences i've ever had just from sheer bloody mindedness i think if you're ever in that situation again Ed, here's a word to the wise got a bit of a, just do what they do at can and just start booing and then walk <laughs> out and then everyone will think you're just like this really highbrow but yet very rude person um but you're really just kind of covering up the fact that you're uh, you're a fraidy cat just start screaming mad over, <laughs> yeah. over again exactly um, I have uh, like a weird thing like when I was younger I was obsessed by monsters in films and I loved monster movies mm-hmm. but they never scared me at all um, I'm more scared by genuine psychopaths like yeah. for instance uh, like people who are incredibly dangerous like someone like Frank Booth in Blue Velvet or um, uh, uh, Ben Kingsley's character in Sexy Beast terrifies me like like to my core uh, or Joe Pesci in Goodfellas, like genuine people who you you might genuinely meet one day down the pub and accidentally knock their pint over, and they'll just like cut you until you like you know you'll just be dead. Oh yeah, I I absolutely agree with that in terms of characters who you feel nervous just spending time with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may not even be doing anything particularly violent in that moment, but they just give off an energy that suggests that things are going to be unpleasant for you at any moment that that's why that you know uh foot you know the i'm funny how scene from goodfellas is so effective because mm-hmm. from the moment it starts you have no idea how it's going to go i mean you kind of know that ray liotta's not going to die because he's telling the story but also you don't know uh 
if something awful happened to him before he got to tell the story and it could be happening in that moment uh, a, a really good example of this uh, is um a few years ago i went with uh, one of my housemates to go and watch bronson the mm-hmm. nicholas winder greffin film which i really love and you know i think it's it's a really uh, really enjoyable film and that you know tom hardy's fantastic in it but as soon as the credits rolled uh, i turned to my housemate and and we both pretty much said words to the effect of yeah let's get the fuck out of here i don't want to spend any more time <laughs> with this guy with this complete psychopath and it was really you know it's a really funny film and it's really uh it's just really compelling but at the same time that that character is so it walks the fine line between being really funny and charismatic and just obviously being completely insane that it's it makes it really hard to spend time with him and it made being in a darkened room with him talking to you essentially directly from the screen one of the more claustrophobic experiences i've ever had in the cinema Mm. speaking of like seeing things in the cinema i have found um films much less scary um watching them in a cinema full of people um i don't know whether that's because uh you have the kind of intimacy of watching something at home like for instance i saw uh, the Blair Witch Project when it came out at the cinema uh, on the big screen in like the I think um, the Cine World in Sheffield had just opened. It's what they called its full Monty screen, which was I think at the time the biggest screen in Europe or one of you know it's like a six or seven hundred seat auditorium. Um, and watching a film at like the Blair Witch Project there just I mean I was very scared. Um, but then you've got to walk out with loads of other people who are like, oh, that were eight shit, I could make that on my phone. Uh, which, I mean, given it was 1999, probably didn't have a very good video phone. But, um, uh, yeah, it's it, I find that uh, kind of less scary than, than watching on your own. Because, like, especially if you're watching somewhere Halloween, which is set in a suburban house, um, and you're watching someone being kind of pinned to a wall in a living room, very much like yours. Um, it can certainly put the willies up you in a way that watching it in a room full of people can. Yeah, I had a, an example of that recently where I watched the, the Michael Glazer film. Not Michael Glazer, Jonathan Glazer. <laughs> not, not Michael Glazer, the guy from Starsky and Hutch who directed The Running Man. Anyway, the Jonathan Glazer film Under the Skin, which mm-hmm. is uh, my favourite film of the year so far. Um, there's still a few months to go, but so far it's it's my favourite. I really, really loved it. I think it's just a, an immaculately... A conceived science fiction film in terms of making everyday life on earth seem incredibly weird and terrifying and i watched it on uh, at on my own at home and it's a film that is relentlessly unnerving and often very distressing even though things aren't really happening nothing that you could point to and say is a traditional moment of horror is happening it'll be things like scarlett johansson's character who is an alien who kind of picks up uh, single men and takes them home and, and kind of has a, a process where their energy is essentially leached from them, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the few genuine traditional scares of the film when you see that process take place. It's, it's really horrifying. But there are other scenes where she is just out in the world and she gets uh, bundled along with a group of, of women who are going to a club and she just goes into this nightclub and even though on the surface nothing particularly dangerous is happening there's this because it's a context that she doesn't really understand because she's only really comfortable when she's traveling in this van talking to people on her own terms uh you get the sense that she feels really really vulnerable and it makes everything in that scene 
really really tense and with the sort of sense that there's going to be violence at any moment and uh, that I'm sure that would have been really effective on the big screen but you know watching it at home on my own it it kind of amplified the uh, sense of isolation and loneliness that is uh, a big part of that scene Mm. yeah yeah I agree I saw that film as well uh, very recently and uh, that shit is fucked up dude um, and yeah, the, the that kind of uh, process of uh, uh, well, I won't kind of say too much about it, but the kind of weird underwater shit uh, that was pretty horrifying. Um, I didn't really, I kind, of, I didn't think it was going to be that kind of avant-garde uh, when I sat down to watch it. I thought it would be still fairly kind of straightforward. It might just be a bit, you know, kind of at a Dutch angle, as it were. But no, it was like it's basically an art, an art science fiction film. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of The Man Who Fell to Earth in that respect, mm. in that both have what seems on the surface to be very straightforward narratives and plots that you could probably break down into a couple of sentences. You know, Alien arrives on Earth, becomes a celebrity. Alien arrives on Earth and takes men home uh, seemingly for sex, but actually for another reason. It's basically species. Um, yeah. Thinking man species. Thinking man species, uh, which I think they should not be ashamed to put on the DVD cover. I, think I is, wouldn't be. That is the a perfect summation of Under the Skin. But, uh, you know, it, it, both of those films go to such further extents in making those basic premises feel really uh, unusual and genuinely uh, unnerving. Um, watching films at home rather than at the cinema is kind of a lot scarier now um, than, it, you know, for instance, I mentioned the Blair Witch Project, this kind of uh, seemingly never-ending slew of found footage horror films. Uh, that's the the uh, uh, kind of horse that won't be flogged quite to death. Uh, um, kind of currently, um, that works so much better at home than it does on a big screen because a lot of the time you're supposed to be uh, under the impression you are watching video footage uh, rather than a uh, pristinely projected 35 millimeter print. Um, Things like that are, no, by no coincidence, do much better on the home video market than they do in in kind of cinemas. Yeah, yeah, I would uh, I would agree with that. I, I've watched a, more of those films at home than in cinemas. I think the last one I watched in the cinema was probably probably the first Paranormal Activity, which did work in a cinema, but also the fact that it was shot obviously shot very cheaply and it's meant to simulate. Well, no, not simulate. It is, you know, sort of commercially available handheld digital cameras being used to film the action. There is a certain uh, uncinematic cheapness to it, mm. and I think that that, while that lends it a that can lend it a reality and a, something more visceral, it more often than not also makes it lose a lot of its those qualities when you see it projected onto a big screen and you can really see the uh, the limits of the visual quality. Um, the the found footage thing is is that ever going to stop? Because like we've had literally, I, I read the other day that um, the guys who did uh, Blair Witch are doing a found footage Bigfoot film, uh, or it's either they're doing it or it's being done. And I've seen, I think uh, it's only one of them. Eduardo Sanchez made a film which was a found footage alien abduction film. I've seen that like several years ago. Um, is it? You know, when's it going to end, Ed? When? I don't think it will ever end unfortunately but i do think that it will 
you know, we talked about this in a recent episode, something like the extreme horror uh, craze, which really took effect in the mid 2000s with Saw and Hostel and all of those films that, that kind of really pushed the boundaries of what you would see in mainstream horror films. Uh, that strain of horror has never gone away and it existed before uh, it became really popular but it obviously becomes more niche and mm-hmm. I think that the found horror the found footage horror films will well they'll keep being made because they're so cheap and you know it's very hard to lose money on a found footage horror film because you just need to you could even give it just a small scale release and you'd probably still earn your money back but mm-hmm. as time goes on they'll probably become more specialized and it'll be more for horror connoisseurs than for uh, mainstream audiences but you know until a film like that mate either completely fails utterly and people have no interest in it or until another particular easily kind of sellable and repeatable form of horror comes along uh, it probably won't go out of fashion for a while um, and whilst we could be quite down on found footage uh, horror films, there are some pretty good ones out there. I'd, I'd recommend uh, a film called The Last Broadcast, which is a, a film that was widely held as being ripped off. Uh, the Blair Witch Project ripped it off. Uh, it's kind of very similar. Um, it's not perfect, but it's quite very effective in parts. Um, but also a film that I know we're, you're a fan of, uh, the, the Spanish film Wreck, uh, which was kind of pointlessly remade. As the American kind of film called Quarantine, was it? Yeah, with uh, Dexter's sister from the uh, TV show Dexter. Yeah, um, Wreck is fantastic uh, to the point where we feel like we should mention it because uh, at the very last minute it got bumped from our alternate 100, um, which was a real shame to lose it, but uh, unfortunately something better came along, uh, well, something different came along that we hadn't included. Um, but that's, a, that's an example of how found footage can work incredibly well. Yeah, I think that one makes use of its setting really well because obviously it's it's they're they're trapped in a single building, and the uh, the threat to them is kind of mysterious. I mean, you kind of can see it around the edges, mm. but is the film takes its time in really revealing the full uh, the full horror of it, and then they I think they explore that a lot more in the sequels. I think they kind of go into a lot more detail. But there they use the intimacy of it to really capture the emotions of what the characters are feeling and uh, as well, to, and they kind of push that to the fore uh, while suggesting a lot of the violence that's going on around them. Mm, yeah, no, I, I get that. And it is a, the conclusion of that film is, yeah, genuinely terrifying and chills me to my core thinking about it. I think that was probably the last film I saw that really, really scared me. Yeah, I... I yeah, probably for me as well. I think it's it's up there with probably the most scared I've been watching a film was uh, David Lynch's In- Inland Empire, mm-hmm. which I watched at a press screening <laughs> on my own uh, at, I think it started about nine in the morning. Uh, so I had to spend three hours uh, trapped in a digital hellscape <laughs> uh, watching all these terrifying images flow across the screen and being uh, just completely overwhelmed by it it's still one of my favorite uh cinema experiences because it, re- it really hasn't been topped but that is uh, the most terrified i've ever been watching a film was just going in and having absolutely no idea what was happening and then occasionally laura dern would just run at the screen and scream at me mm. uh, which is uh, j- yeah it was just a really disorientating and and really uh provocative experience 
Well, I'm glad we're uh, kind of opening up and talking about our most uh, kind of terrifying experiences um, because I feel like I should share mine. Um, anyone who's a similar age to me and grew up in Britain, uh, I'm 33 years old, uh, um, uh, may share this um, because uh, growing up, um, might have seen a TV program uh, on BBC One, um, uh, kind of Halloween 1992, I believe it was, um, a little program called Ghost Watch. Mm. Um, which um, was, uh, for those who don't know, is a, is a, is a uh, uh, kind of a BBC drama, and still I think still one of BBC's highest rated dramas in terms of audience share. Um, um, it was a drama which uh, purported to be real, um, and it purported to be a live investigation of a uh, haunted house. Um, it's very cleverly done. It's kind of pretty far ahead of its time. Um, and it was uh, basically kind of uh, based around the Enfield Poltergeist case, uh, which is a well-documented um, Poltergeist case. I say well-documented as if Poltergeists are real. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to scare anyone at home, but they're kind of they're not real. It's fine. It's it's all good. Um, but yeah, it was uh, set in a suburban house, and they had a studio with uh, uh, British television personalities such as Michael Parkinson and uh, uh, the late Mike Green. Um, uh, were in the studio and then they had uh, on location they had uh, Craig Charles and Sarah Green who would uh, go into this haunted house and kind of uh, report on things that was happening over the night and like I say it's a drama it's a single issue it's a single episode drama but it was presented as real and as an 11 year old child I did not make the kind of uh, uh, kind of distinction between fact and fiction and a lot of people didn't it still remains the most complained about television programme that the BBC have ever read because people were genuinely terrified that things were happening because over the course of the show, uh, well, the ghost appears and causes hell and it's awful, it's terrifying. And um, I was so frightened by a ghost watch because, again, set in a suburban house very much like mine, uh, I was scared to go upstairs in my house for about six months afterwards on my own. It was truly, truly terrifying. And um, it was such a big deal for me that like about three years ago I got the DVD and uh, I was really scared about watching it. Um, <laughs> and when I actually watched it, uh, I as soon as it was over, I went back and watched it again uh, as someone who the first viewing got the uh, you know the kind of the, the the monkey off my back, as it were, of it being uh, very very scary. Um, and the second viewing, I watched just to see how cleverly it was done because um, it was really brilliantly put together. Uh, they'd do things like show a bit of footage where it's obviously got a ghost in it. And then they'd say, oh, hang on, can we watch that bit of footage again? Because I think I saw a ghost in the corner. And they would show the same bit of footage without the ghost in. And you'd be like, dude, I'm so sure I saw a ghost there. And you'd be you'd be kind of kidding, like kind of, you know, like you wouldn't believe yourself, which is the best thing a horror film can do. It, can, it makes you doubt your own sanity. Um, and yeah, it's really, really well put together. And I, I kind of read about some really crazy stuff they wanted to do. They wanted to put a, a tone in the broadcast that would be indistinguishable to the human ear, but dogs would go crazy. So that's, they actually wanted to do that. And the BBC were like, oh, actually, I think it's a bit, it's a bit risky that because <laughs> they were going to like, you know, have a bit in the show where a, a dog started barking or whatever, and everyone else is around the country's dog would go mental. And like, that's kind of crazy. And uh, I think that is is a brilliant show. I think if you get it, the BFI release it, it's kind of held in quite high esteem, but they've never repeated it in Britain. 
is uh, truly, truly terrifying. And uh, it's dated a little bit, but yeah, still fantastic. I'd recommend watching it, but not as an 11-year-old. Yeah, I think the authenticity of that is probably a big part of why that uh, it works so well. And also kind of maybe why it won't work in quite the same way now for people who weren't, certainly for people who aren't familiar with like TV in the early 90s and, the, and who Michael Parkinson was at that time. Uh, the idea of him being the face of the BBC and being this kind of cuddly old guy who everyone knew and was kind of a respected, uh, a respected part of the the uh, the BBC as as an establishment, and having him as the face of that show and staging it as you know sort of a uh, like any other kind of live event that the BBC used to do with crowds outside and the presenters going around talking to people and being really jolly about it in the beginning mm. i think all of that work into making it seem authentic is why it resonated with so many people and why so many people were taken in by it before you even get to the like you say the really clever editing and the and messing with people's expectations of live tv in a way that they hadn't really seen before uh, and and making people doubt themselves in in very uh, small but effective ways. Mm. Yeah, go back and watch it. And like there's like I said, there's loads of tricks they pull. They kind of ghost appears on screen subliminally like loads of times, kind of the Tyler Durden and Poltergeists. Um, <laughs> but they they also do a really good job of um, of uh, kind of you know it's a really compelling ghost story. I think it's a a kind of cross dressing person who kind of uh, kills himself in. A the, the the basement of a of a, uh, a house that is used as a kind of um, an abortion clinic. <laughs> it's really terrifying, and uh, the, the body was dismembered by cats that he'd locked himself in the basement with. And you, you kind of see that like kind of a man in a dress with one eye uh, called Pipes. I'm, like, I tell you what, I'm getting goosebumps uh, just saying all this. It's kind of scaring me because you know I don't want to ruin the magic of this show, but it's recorded at like. 6 p.m. American time, 1 a.m. Britain time. And I've got to go to bed in a minute, and I'm, I don't think I'm going to sleep now, having relived my ghost watch nightmare. Well, if nothing else, I think that that makes this episode a success. Mm, absolutely worth it. Um, is there any other particular uh, uh, demons you'd like to uh, exercise on this show, Ed? Uh, it's not a film, but I think something that genuinely gave me nightmares when it first came out was Resident Evil 4, the... Uh, video game and, and similarly to uh something like uh, like uh, i was really terrified of freddy krueger for years before i actually saw any of the nightmare on elm street films because i saw at a very young age the simpsons halloween special that makes fun of the nightmare on elm street films mm-hmm. and although it's very funny and it has some really great jokes and it is, is one of their better segments just the idea of someone being able to kill you in your dreams, uh, even done comedically, really, really horrified me. And the same thing happened with Resident Evil 4, where I watched the trailer for it, which was released, which was just the character of Leon in this Spanish village in the middle of nowhere, having hordes of these people chase after him and having to constantly run and fight. And there's like seemingly hundreds of people coming after you and you have to keep running and shooting and running and jumping through windows. And just the seeming futility of it gave me nightmares of just being chased by large groups of people and having to fend them off uh i think that that is one of those things that 
for whatever reason, really kind of lodged itself in my psyche and uh, made and really, really unnerved me. Mm, it's a hugely atmospheric game, isn't it? Really, Resident mm. Evil Four. Yeah, even though it's more of an action orientated ones than a lot of the subsequent ones, the the kind of implacable nature of the enemies and the fact that you don't know which one of them is going to sprout tentacles and start attacking you if you shoot them in the head, mm. uh, that really uh, is unnerving. As is a game for the GameCube, which uh, I loved and didn't get as much attention as it should have got, which is a film called a game called Eternal Darkness. Uh, have you ever heard about that one? I'm not sure. Eternal, Eternal Darkness was a, a Lovecraftian uh, story of a woman who goes to her ancestral home after the apparent suicide of her grandfather, and she discovers all these historical records of things that her members of her family have been involved with in a fight against a kind of formless ancient evil. And uh, you play her as the main character kind of going around the house and uh, inf- discovering all these things, but then you play all of her ancestors going through all of the various events. And it's really atmospheric because you play people at various different times in history. You start off playing a Roman centurion and then you play like guys in medieval France and stuff. And it's really, really cool. But one of the things the the game did, which is kind of gimmicky but really, really effective, is it it had a health meter, but it also had what was called an insanity meter. Mm. And every time you encountered something crazy, like, you know, a zombie or a spell, your insanity meter would go down. And once it reached a certain level, the game started fucking with you. Mm-hmm. And it would do things like it would turn its own volume down to make you think your television was broken. And then if you tried to turn the volume up after a few minutes, it would turn it back itself back up so you would deafen yourself. Or you you would see insects crawling across the screen that weren't there. Or you'd see enemies that didn't exist. Or your character's head would explode for no reason. And it was really, really effective. And it was also just deeply, deeply weird and unnerving. And it also kind of forced you to play the game in the wrong way because you would want to see... You, you were meant to get through each level as quickly as possible so your character doesn't go insane, but you would just want to see the different ways the game was going to fuck with you, and so you would play it wrongly. And I think that that kind of manipulation uh, made it one of the scariest, but also one of the most uh, immersive gaming experiences I've ever had. Mm, yeah, I've got kind of... I played a game called... Uh, have you ever played Fatal Frame? Or I uh, think it's called, it's called Project Zero in, in Europe. I've... I know I saw an episode of Consolvania about it. Is that one where you uh, you play a photographer? Yeah, you're basically a kind of Japanese schoolgirl, mm. um, and you have to take photographs of ghosts. And um, I played it for about ten minutes before having to turn it off and put the game like somewhere else, like in a dustbin. I don't want to talk about Friends, <laughs> where Joey puts The Shining in the freezer. Um, but that was generally it. I had to kind of turn all the lights on, put TVs on in every room because it was it was kind of too. There was a really great bit where you're with your sister and you're walking through a haunted house and the, the kind of it goes to a, like a kind of a close up of you and you see her, the sister's hand go on your shoulder but then the sister walks past and the hand's still there and I was just like oh. and I kind of turn it off but I, I kind of was, my memory was jogged by that the other day because I saw there's a new version of the game coming out. I think they've done like five or six games and uh, the, the the most recent version has got the worst title of any video game I've ever heard which is Fatal Frame, Oracle of the Sodden Raven. <laughs> God, oh, that's awful. Which yeah. sounds like a kind of a, a kind of vocal warm up Ron Burgundy would do. <laughs> you know, doesn't yeah, work I think, at all. I think that uh, not to uh, go further down this tangent because uh, we've already gone a, a, a while, but I do feel that 
video games in general seem like a more effective way of scaring people than films in that because they're an active medium that forced you to lean forward there's more potential for you to get really freaked out by the stuff that's happening Mm. Um, and because you're part of the story um, you don't really have the option of like pausing it and you know going and doing something else because when you come back you still have to you know kill the zombies or whatever you know you have to take action to do it so either you uh, succeed or you die and start again and have to kind of face the horror over again i think that's one of the things that uh, is not explored enough in video games the potential for horror i think that's also one of the reasons why something like silent hill works so well as a game and is a complete dead duck as a movie mm. because you have to go through this explore this horrifying town and see all of its horrors and interact with them and try and figure out how to get through it which isn't really as interesting as seeing Sean Bean go through the motions of it. Which is surprising, because you think that would be great. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest things about horror films is you like that classic thing of, oh, don't open that door, don't go down there. But if you're playing the game, you've got to open that door, and you have to go down there. Um, Otherwise, it's not a video game, it's just an idiot holding a controller. (laughs) You know. Um, Anyway, we've kind of verged off of video games is a whole other topic, but um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was Halloween. If you're going trick-or-treating this evening, uh, listeners, um, you don't do that. It's weird. Uh, really strange. <laughs> it's kind of uh, fucked up, dude. Don't do it. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's it from us on the subject of uh, scary stuff in Halloween. Um, I found it quite cathartic. Um, I don't know if you have it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, certainly being forced to relive, uh, talking about... Uh, relive Dougal and the Blue Cat is uh, something that uh, I found very fun and uh, yeah. I may actually try and track it down on YouTube and rewatch it because I do remember it being just a frightfully odd film <laughs> mm, I'm going to have to watch it now as well um, but yeah we're off now um, so don't have nightmares and uh, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me